Well, good morning, Heights family. Sure good to see everybody here today. Good morning to all of those that have been joining us through the live stream. Glad to have you with us. Wow, folks, we've had a tremendous summer. How about yesterday? Was that incredible? I mean, I know somebody in here was involved in yesterday. Yeah, we had, uh, you know, kind of hard to count spread out so far, but pretty sure we had well over 500 people at 40 different locations around our community, helping people with their homes, helping our schools clean up, get ready, uh, doing things for other ministries. And, And so many of these things we did yesterday, it wasn't a matter of helping somebody do something so they didn't have to. In in many of these cases, it just wouldn't have gotten done. It it just would not have happened. And so, man, y'all are just awesome. The way you go out and show God's kindness and love. Yeah, go ahead and clap for that. It was, it was tremendous. You know, it's funny. I think I had the greatest blessing of all yesterday. Now, I probably did less work than anybody yesterday. My biggest challenge was not to get chilled with the air conditioning getting in and out of the car. Because uh, I just kind of moved from site to site. But I'm going to tell you, it was overwhelming to see it. Just to see the variety of things we were doing and the kinds of things that were happening. It was, it was just an, an incredible day. So thank you so much for making that happen and giving us that opportunity to, to be God's kindness, to be His love in our community. I tell you, another thing I think has made this summer so great is uh, the kind of the beginning of the relationship we have going with Mount Olivet down in uh, Petersburg. Uh, of course, back at the beginning of, or middle of May, uh, they came here, their pastor, their worship team, they led us in services on those days. And then two Sundays ago, uh, August 7th, myself, our choir, orchestra, our worship team, we all went down there and, and had services down there. And I tell you, at the end of that, I was pretty close to be ready. Let's just go on to heaven. Let's just say we're done here and just go on home. I mean, this is... This is good. It was, it was just phenomenal experience. And uh, I know a lot of you are wondering, hey, where does this go now? What, what happens now? Uh, you know, our, our hope now is we, we've, we've now worshiped side by side in each of our houses. And uh, kind of the next thing we're hoping is kind of a little bit of what we did yesterday. Is we're looking to kind of create a, a Love 804 event. Uh, an event in one of our communities where we now go down and we serve side by side. Worship side by side. Now let's minister and serve side by side. Now that's very vague right at the moment, but that's kind of where we're hoping to go next, what we're going to be trying uh, to build and to do with Mount Olivet. You know, as I think about what is happening uh, between these two churches, between these two pastors, you know, I, I'm reminded of one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Genesis fifty twenty, where it says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because, you know, our relationship with this church was birthed out of a tragedy. It was, it was birthed out of an evil. It started about, I don't remember the exact timing, a year and a half or so ago, uh, when a white man walked into a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, and killed. Do you all remember that event? And that's kind of where our relationship got started. And, you know, sadly, I, I think as we look back on that event a year, year and a half ago now, not, not a lot's gotten better, has it? As a matter of fact, I think a lot of us would be concerned that, that things are just getting, they're just getting worse and worse and worse. And, and you know, when something is getting bad, and especially, I guess, when it's kind of on a national level, such a broad level, I, I think what we end up doing, and, and I hate to use this word, is, is, is nothing. Because I think our tendency then is where I'm going to lay back and I'm going to wait till a significant leader comes and, and, and brings us the answer. I'm going to wait for a, a big event that's going to change things. And, and there is no doubt that, that the right leader or leaders, a, a, a certain kind of event or the types of it can be a catalyst for change. But folks, we've got a lot of leaders, don't we? And we've had a lot of events. And it's still getting just worse and worse and worse. And so I can't help but wonder if maybe the greater need we have in America is not for some big significant leader, but millions and millions of good neighbors. That that what we need in America 
is not a big event, but millions of events that go on all day, every day, that could be described as little more as the activity and the action of a good neighbor. Because folks, I think there is a place where a good neighbor, that's where the power of God falls. And that's where change comes. Man, I can't help but wonder, what, what could a good neighbor have meant in the life of Irving Linwood Pedro? I got to know about the story of Mr. Pedro this, this past May. Karen and I had gone to, to Blacksburg for our daughter's graduation there from, from Virginia Tech. And in that graduation ceremony, Mr. Pedro was being given an honorary degree. Only the eighth honorary degree that Virginia Tech has ever given. And so because of that, uh, in this, this graduation publication, his, um, his story was written up and his picture was placed there. And uh, not, not only was it written for us to read, but it was also told from the platform. So we're, we're all there. I don't know what there was, 15,000 people, I guess, there in Lane Stadium. And, and we're hearing this story. Let me, let me share a, a, a piece of it with you. Irving Linwood Pedro III was born in 1935 in Hampton, Virginia, where he graduated from high school with honors. Due to his academic credentials, he was recruited by colleges from around the country. He applied to all of Virginia's traditionally white colleges, but received a scholarship from the Commonwealth aimed at encouraging him to choose an out-of-state school. As he was about to leave for freshman orientation at the University of Southern California, he received a telegram announcing his acceptance at Virginia Polytechnic Institute, known today as Virginia Tech. In September of 1953, Mr. Pedro became the first black student admitted to Virginia Tech. And listen to this. And the first to attend any historically all-white four-year public institution in the 11 former states of the Confederacy. He entered the university as an electrical engineering major and a member of the Corps of Cadets. Despite being accepted for admission, Mr. Pedro was not permitted to live on campus or to eat in the cafeteria with the other cadets. Living with a family a mile away from campus, he carried his cadet gear back and forth each day, rain, sleet, or shine. During his third year, he traveled to California as a part of a student project. The social, social isolation and pervasive discrimination he suffered at Virginia Tech and in the surrounding community had taken its toll, and the West Coast provided a welcomed refuge. He stayed and he joined the workforce there. And the, the, the story goes on to describe a very, very accomplished career in aerospace engineering and shipbuilding, even in the fruit industry. I'm not sure how those all combined, but, but he had accomplishments in all of those areas. His accomplishments literally carried him all over the world. You know, as, as we listen to that, and when I say we, the 15,000 or so of us there in Lane Stadium, as, as we listen to that, for me, two things happen. One is I felt, and this is a feeling, so who knows if it's true or not, but, but I felt like there was a, a, a spirit of embarrassment in Lane Stadium. I, know, I mean, I know what I was thinking and feeling. I know what my wife was thinking and feeling. You could hear people talking around, and there seemed to be this really great embarrassment that this, something like this went on. That, that, that this happened. Now, the, the, the second thing that I, that I thought, and this may not sound very sensitive, but, and Mr. Pedri was there. Uh, he's in a wheelchair and he was, he was on the, the platform. And, and of course, like we do, you know, there's a big camera on him. And so he's up on the iMag there at, at Lane Stadium. So you're looking at, I couldn't help but think, why'd you quit after three years? Man, you've endured so much. You've gone through so much. How, how do you not hang on for, for just one more year and get that degree? You know, but then I guess I started thinking, gosh, I wonder, wonder how bad it was. And this is what I started thinking of. And I'm not guessing this was really the bad part. I'm, I'm quite confident he endured much worse than what I was thinking. But I, this is just what, where my mind went. I just started thinking about him making that one-mile walk to campus each day. In the morning, in the evening, rain, snow, heat. 
You, you, know, you know, the cadets that were there, the community that watched him make this walk. You know, you know, Blacksburg's not a huge community today. I'm guessing in 1953, it was much smaller. And everybody in the community knew who this was. This is not like some dangerous person, some stranger that, that we don't know. I mean, everybody there knows. That's that, that's that black kid they let into tech. And you know, they all know. The cadets know. The community Man, the life of a cadet's hard, isn't it? That, that is a hard, demanding life without the one-mile walk in the morning and the one-mile walk every evening. And, and so I couldn't help but what, wonder, as a community watched this kid walk back and forth, I just wondered, I wonder how many Christians drove past him every day. I wondered, you know, gosh, in 1953, would I have drove past him? In 2016, would I drive past him? My answer to that, your answer to that, says a lot more about who and what you are in Christ than you might understand or might want to understand. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's let Jesus answer that question, shall we? I want to read a story from Jesus that I think will, will give life to what I just said. Look with me today in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, there in your Bible, in your New Testament... First four books of the New Testament are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So get, get to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And, and what I'm going to read today is a story that is maybe one of the most well-known stories in all the Bible. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. I mean, this is a story that is known throughout world religions. It is a story even today that is known in secular culture. This week, this very week, I couldn't have planned it. There was a story on the internet I was reading about how a good Samaritan was attacked. I mean, that happens, right? Good Samaritan stops, does the right thing, and, 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 and gets attacked. But that, my point is, even today in secular culture, we refer to the Good Samaritan. So this is a really well-known story that Jesus gives us. What's all in it? What's all going on with why Jesus is telling this story? Let, let me read it. Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Well, what's written in the law? How, how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Would you say that with me? The other side. Okay, now that we know what we're doing, let's try it again. The other side. Those are three extremely profound words in this story. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Verse 33. But, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought, to him, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of the robbers, hands of the robbers? And he said, Well... The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Folks, we, we cannot separate our relationship with God from our relationship with others. There, there's no scenario. There's no situation, no context. There's no reason 
that I can have hate and anger and prejudice or bitterness or just a dislike for someone else, for a race, for a kind of people, and think that I'm in right and good standing with God. Folks, to love God is to love people. Just plain and simple. And doesn't that just make us a little bit want to ask, what people are you talking about? Because that's what the lawyer's asking. When he, when he says, okay, well, well now wait a minute. Who, who, who's, who's my neighbor? He's basically saying, what people are you wanting me to love? Can you narrow the field for me a little bit? Now, let me, let me say something right here about this word neighbor that we're going to use throughout the morning and, and that obviously goes through this passage. When you and I hear the word neighbor, what do we think of? Here, 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 right? It's people who live around us on the street, up and down the street. You live in a neighborhood. You, you might refer to anybody in the neighborhood as your neighbor. But that, that's the neighbor, right? You have, I have people I love. People that are good friends of mine. People that I spend time with. But I don't call them my neighbor. Why? Because they don't live on my street. They don't live here, 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 or here. See, neighbor for us is just about an address, isn't it? I hope you're picking up, or maybe you've realized, in the Bible, the word neighbor actually has nothing to do with your address. So it makes it a little bit confusing when they're using the same word that we use a lot, but really not at all the same meaning. Neighbor in the Bible is, well, it would be in your neighborhood if your, if your neighborhood was like, say, oh, planet Earth. Okay? Because neighbor here is really just synonymous with others. N- neighbor here is synonymous with people. And so Jesus says, you know, yeah, that's right. You got to love people. Hey, could you, could you help define that people for me? Now, our lawyer here, let's understand a little bit about him. He's not a lawyer like you and I would think of a lawyer. He is an expert in the religious law. He is an expert in the Mosaic law. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So what he would do is assist the priest, the temple, the community, he, he would be there for you and me to answer questions. Hey, I was going to do this in this way. Is that, that's good with the law, right? That, that, that doesn't put me out with God. You know, so any kind of questions that the community had, that an individual had, his job was to kind of answer and give legal direction. I, I think probably today we'd call him a theologian. Kind of, kind of some kind of religious expert, if you will. And so he comes up to Jesus and asks, I mean, the question, right? I mean, it's, it's the question of all questions. Hey, can, how do I get into heaven? How do I have a relationship with God? Tell me about eternal life. Now, we know from the scripture that his approaching Jesus is not entirely of pure motives. He's not there really to dialogue with Jesus, to, to discuss an answer to a question. He's there to trap Jesus. Try to catch him in an inconsistency or a, a contradiction. So he asked Jesus this question, and I love Jesus' answer in verse 26. Jesus says, well, you're the expert, you tell me. Now, that's pretty much what he's saying to him. And you know what the expert does? He tells him, and he nails it. He says, man, you've you got to love God with everything you are and have, and you've you got to love others. And, and those are traditionally Old and New Testament. Those are known as the two greatest commands in Scripture. And what makes them the greatest commands? Because we really don't rank commands. But what makes them the greatest is really those are the two things we do in, in following God. Every command in the Bible is just telling you, elaborating on, defining what it means to love God, what it means to love others. So, okay, I've got this command to love God. Well, how do I do that? Hey, don't worship idols because that wouldn't be loving God, would it? Don't take the Lord's name in vain because that wouldn't be loving God. Hey, worship the Lord because that's how you love Him. Well, what about loving others? Well, don't lie to them. Don't lust after them. And don't steal from them because that wouldn't be loving, right? But instead, serve and forgive because that would... See, every single command in the Bible is just falling under what it means to love God, what it means to love others. So he, he gives this right answer and Jesus says, you know, boom, you did it. There it is. Go do it. Whew. Two words, four letters, do it. <laughs> Those are pretty, that's pretty profound though, isn't it? Do it. You know, you know, folks, if we're not careful, isn't it easy 
to kind of end up letting your whole Christian life be about talking about the Christian life? I come to church and, and we hear it preached and taught and, and we discuss it and we go to life group and we hear it taught and we discuss it. Maybe you've got some friends that you like to have coffee or dinner with and, and y'all kind of haggle and, and kind of get into the deep things of God and what's this passage mean? Oh, I think it means, you know, and, you do, and by the way, that's all awesome. That's exactly the kinds of things we should be doing. But if we're not careful, we let the talking about it become the goal. We let the talking about it become the end. The talking about it is a means, not the end. It's a means to doing it. And so Jesus says, go do it. Go, go, go do that. Wow. Now that almost leads to a whole other message. The question is, how can I have eternal life, love God and love others? Well, I don't do that very well. You know, I say I don't do that very well. Honestly, folks, I actually think I, I kind of do. Is that wrong for me to say? I think there's a lot of days I love God and I really love them like the Bible talks about. And I think there's a lot of days I really try to love people and I, I try to do that a lot the way the Bible talks about. But I got some days, not, not so much, right? What about, that? well, wait a minute, if this is about getting into heaven, have a, well, well, what percentage of days do I have to, <laughs> so that's, a, that's almost a whole nother question, right? But anyway, this guy lands on the perfect answer. Jesus says, go do it. And boy, that doing it is hard. It's hard. Hey, let's be honest. It's hard to love the people we want to love. Much less starting to talk about people I don't know, don't love, don't want to know, don't want to love. What, what about that? And so the lawyer, kind of a bad guy, but he's probably a whole lot more like you and me. He says, hey, Jesus, could you... Could you narrow the field some? Could, could you put some definition on this love others, love my neighbor? Who is that? So the question on the table is, who is my neighbor? And do you see what Jesus does with it? I mean, that's not a hard question, is it? No, it's not. And, 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 and the answer, I mean, he could have said, well, it's planet Earth. He could have said, well, love your, your family and your friends. I love, love the people you go to church with. Uh, and you know what? Just for good measure, throw in one enemy and one stranger a month. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of ways to very specifically answer that question. But that's not what Jesus does, is it? He, he launches into, who's my neighbor? He launches into this story. Now, the story is a, a parable. It's a fictitious story. Jesus isn't saying, hey, did y'all read in the Jerusalem Times yesterday about that guy on the road? So it's not a true story in that sense, but it's a story based on reality. In other words, he's telling a story of something that really did happen, that really did go on, everybody would have been familiar with. Everybody knew the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was dangerous. As a matter of fact, as he's telling this story, you know what I think people would have been thinking about the guy in the ditch? He got what he had coming to him. What was he doing on that road by himself? You know, if you were going to travel, if you had to travel between those two cities, you know what you'd do? You'd go to the center town and you'd find out who was going to Jerusalem today. Who, who was going to Jericho today. And, and you would get in a caravan. You would get in a group. You just would not travel that road alone. It was too dangerous. It was called, had a nickname, the road to blood. Because that's what's happening when you walk on that road. And so it's a very dangerous road. It's an interesting road kind of in the topography, the geography of it all. Jerusalem sits on a hill. Big city on top of a, of a big hill. It sits about 2,300 feet above sea level. Well, as, it, as you come down from Jerusalem, you're going into the, the deepest place on the whole earth. I mean, if you go south, you're at the Dead Sea. If you go north, you're at Jericho. These are places that are not only below sea level, they're like a thousand, over a thousand feet below sea level. It means we have no concept of that in America. Over a thousand feet below sea level. And so if you're in Jericho and heading to Jerusalem, it's only 17 miles away. But in that 17 miles, you would ascend, or if you're coming back, descend oh, over 4,000 feet in, in elevation. Well, you've, I'm sure you've been driving up, a lot of you, way to a mountain, and you look on the mountainside, you can kind of see it cutting the trees, right? The hiking trails, or, or maybe the road. You don't go straight up, that's too hard. You don't come straight down, you'd lose control. What do you do? You zigzag, right? 
You just, you just kind of do this up the side of the mountain. Well, that's what that road was like and the way it laid in the side of the hill there, it just made it very easy to attack people. And Jerusalem, Jericho, these are, these are big cities. These are big cities of commerce. It's people with money that are traveling back and forth. That's just where the bad guys were. And, that, and that's just what happened. So Jesus is telling this story. Now, as we go into the story, why don't you stop and think about something? Maybe, maybe, I'm sure a lot of you, you've heard this story. You've looked at this story before. But I want you to think about this. Why are there all these characters in this story? You don't need two, three, or more characters to, to answer the question, to make... You don't need them. So why? Why is there a priest? Why is there a Levite? Why is there a Samaritan? Why is Jesus including these characters in this story? Now, our first character to come wandering by is the, the priest. There are thousands of priests in Israel. And it doesn't take thousands to run the temple. And so what they did is they broke up the priest into teams. And those teams would serve two weeks a year. Anyway, this is my life. This is what I'm, I'm called to be and what I'm called to do. Only two weeks a year do I do that though. And so those two weeks, as you can imagine, that's the highlight of my year. I, lo I look forward to this all year long. Now, while this is a fictitious story, as Jesus is telling it, why would a priest be traveling that road? I mean, everybody's mind, you know, you know I, bet that, I bet that guy lives in one of the northern tribes and he's, he's on his way to the temple and he's getting ready to, to do his two weeks. Well, when a priest came in contact with a dead body, yeah, I see a dead body there, I, I come in contact with it, I engage with it. The priest then, by the law, would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. So... I'm on a priest. I'm a priest. I'm on my way to the, the biggest two weeks of my life. If I stop and engage with this, I give up one of those weeks. Wait, man, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I mean, can you see how it might kind of be easy to kind of reason in your mind? Man, I'm, you know, I'm going to do God's work. I'm, I'm doing God's stuff here. And if I, if I stop and get involved in this, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do what God's called me to do. And so what's he do? He comes trucking over here to the, to the other side. You know what the other side is, don't you? Because we've all, every one of us, I'm not saying we do it every time, but we've all traveled the other side. You see, as I get as far over here as I can, I can pretend like I don't really see. I'll be looking over this way and I can just walk by and I don't even see what's going on over there in the ditch. And since I didn't really see it, I'm not sure if I saw anything or not, I, I don't have to get involved. I don't know, maybe there's somebody up the hill that's looking and if I, if I don't really see, then, then nobody would expect me or hold me accountable to get engaged and get involved in this person. And, and, and that's what he did and I bet he went right on there, by there actually feeling justified. We've all done that, right? I, I, yeah, I, feel, I, I can actually feel good about not doing the right thing because I'm over here doing the stuff of God. I, to be honest with you, I didn't even see it. See what? I don't know. I didn't, even, I didn't even really see it. And then the Levite goes by. Now a Levite is, uh, a Levite kind of does everything else that the priest doesn't do. I mean the Levites assist the priest. The Levites kind of, the, the, probably the big thing they did is they led worship. They were the worship leader, the orchestra leader. They were the choir. They were the orchestra. They, that was a big part of what they did. The Psalms was their playground. And, and then another thing they did, they were also experts in the law. As a matter of fact, it didn't have to be, but it, there's a possibility that this lawyer that Jesus is talking to is a Levite. And so now we have a Levite, both good church folk, both good church leaders. They come by, where does he go? Other side. Same thing going on. Now folks, you and I will read a story like this. I don't know the priest, I don't know the Levite, don't care to know the priest, don't care to know the Levite. I mean, just, okay, that's just stuff. If Jesus was in this room telling this story, it'd be uncomfortable. Because, you know, he'd probably come in here and say, hey, I want to tell you a story. First of all, y'all love your pastor. Y'all love Pastor Han, don't you? Yeah, man, we love Pastor Han. Okay, so Jesus gets up and says, I want to tell you a story. So Pastor Han comes by, and Pastor Han's over here on the other side. You're going, of course, everybody's looking at me then, right? I wonder what, I wonder what he thinks. Jesus is making him sound like a bad guy. 
You know, and, and, then, and then maybe he calls out one of our deacons or maybe he calls out your life group team. And he, boom, there's a second one. We're all falling now. You know, he's coming in here, folks. He, he's using good church people. Why? I mean, again, you do not have to have a couple of strikeouts to answer the question, who's my neighbor? You don't need that. So why is he introducing a couple of strikeouts to this? And why is he making the strikeouts good church folk like you and me? Hey, I mean, I'm trying a whole lot more than those yahoos out there. So, so why does he come in here? Folks, I wonder, is it possible to call myself a good man or woman of God and I'm up here at church and I'm busy doing the, the you know, God stuff and church stuff, but is maybe Jesus trying to introduce an idea to you and me? Hey, listen, if you're being such a wonderful man or woman of God, doing the stuff of God, doesn't actually ever result in you getting on your knees and helping somebody out of the ditch, you might not just be the man or woman of God you think you are. And if Jesus walked in here and said that to you and me today, I'm telling you what, we're uncomfortable. A couple of you aren't uncomfortable, you're already gone. <laughs> you, you heard the first one, you come out, I don't know what this guy says. Yeah, we're uncomfortable. This is awkward. We would be thinking, where, where, where's he going with this? What, what's his point? Okay? I'll tell you where he's going. He's getting ready to take the gloves off and get into a bare knuckle fist fight. Let me tell you where he's going. Next verse tells us. But, but's a word of contrast, right? In contrast, indifference from you good church folk, a Samaritan comes by. Now you, again, a lot of us, not all of us, a lot of us have maybe been in church for a while. We've heard this story. We've, we've heard the Samaritan. He's a pretty good guy, but I think... I don't think people like them. Why don't we like this? Who is this Samaritan? What's this all about? And remember, as Jesus introduces the Samaritan in the story, you and I are already a little put out by where Jesus is going with this story. We're already a little uncomfortable. And then he throws the Samaritan in the story. Now, what, what is a Samaritan? Okay, in this day and age, of course, you have these empires, right? Can you imagine what it's like to control an empire when you don't have a car? I got no car, I got no plane, I got no phone, I got no email. How do you control me? And folks, some of these empires were as big as the United States. How, how do you control an empire when you can't move around? Well, what you do is you'd, you'd come over here and you'd conquer this nation, okay? And you'd scoop up all their people, not all of them. You'd leave behind the sick, the elderly, the lame, the homeless. You'd leave behind that group of people. But you'd, you'd pretty much scoop up everybody else and you'd bring them over here to this nation that you'd conquered. And, and, and then you scooped up the people of that nation you conquered and guess where you took them? Back over here to this one. And the idea was very simple. If I can keep people displaced... If I can keep them out of their culture, out of their comfort zone, it's easier to keep them submissive. It's easier to keep a control over the empire. Well, this happened to Israel. It happened because of their sin and rebellion. That's a whole other story. But it happened twice to Israel. The ten, the ten northern tribes known as Israel were conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. And so the Assyrians come in, defeat them, cart off almost all the people, leave behind a few. In 586 BC, Babylon comes in. They defeat the two southern tribes referred to as Judah. Okay, so again, pick them all up. By the way, our Old Testament books, Esther, Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezra, those books are all about inside this process of being taken to other countries or, or being brought back. Now, my point in saying that the, 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 uh, the Assyria exile, when the northern tribes were defeated, 722 B.C. So when we get down to Jesus' time, we're talking about 700 years of what? There were these people that the Assyrians brought in and they put them, if you looked in your map at the back of the Bible, they were north of Jerusalem and south of the Sea of Galilee. You know, in a car, it's a, two hours so, so a lot of these people are put right there in that area. And they come in, they're, they're pagans, they worship other religions, they are not Jewish, they're, they're of another race, and they come in, and of course as the decades become centuries, they, there's this intermingling, this, there's, there's this intermarrying, and you end up with really a half-breed. 
you've got somebody that is kind of Jewish in race, but not. They've kind of made religion kind of a potpourri and just kind of mixed it all together. So they got a little bit of Jewish faith, but not. Well, as the Jews started making their way back, these people stayed in the land. And, and they hated them. They hated them. Matter of fact, you know, there's a lot of reasons to be prejudiced against people. But probably the two primary reasons throughout history and around the world are race and religion, Right? I hate you because of your race. I hate you because of your religion. You know what the Samaritan was? Both. Both. They were hated for their religion. They were hated for their race. So remember, you and I are already comfortable with Jesus kind of calling out good church folk. But then he turns around and he makes, watch this, he picks somebody of the wrong race. He picks somebody of the wrong religion. And he makes them the right neighbor. I mean, honestly, I'd say, Jesus, you're just not even being a good speaker there. I mean, people are tuning you out. They're getting up and walking out. I mean, what are, what, why? Why? Why does he make somebody of the wrong race, the wrong religion, the right neighbor? Now, when I say the right neighbor, I've got to keep backing up. The question is what? Who's my neighbor? But if you notice that this story is not really about who my neighbor is. Isn't this story a whole lot more about what you can do to be a good neighbor? Isn't this story more answering the question, what is a good neighbor more than who is my neighbor? Now, I think the story answers it. You know who my neighbor is? Guy in the ditch. Who's the guy in the ditch? It's anybody on the planet I see in need. I'm at work, I'm at school, I'm on vacation, I'm working in the yard, I'm, I'm at the store, I'm at the ballpark, I'm just minding my own business. My neighbor is anytime I come in contact with somebody I can help, somebody I can serve, it's anybody I see in need. So that's made real quickly, real easily right up front, but then the rest of the story is more about what I do then now that I see somebody in need. And I think probably the key word in the story that, that encapsulates what a good neighbor does is the word compassion. It's the word compassion. That word compassion means a deep moving within. It, it, it means I can't pretend not to see. Man, when it is God's love, and that's, that's what we're pretending we have in us, right? When it's God's love, when it's God's compassion in me, I can't, I can't get over here and act like I didn't see. I did see. And I must move. I must cross the street. I must get engaged. I must get involved. Now, why? Why the word must? We, we, I didn't say, come on, guys, let's be nice people and let's do the right thing. Boy, you really should... No, I said must. Why is there a must there? Folks, isn't it, isn't it because without compassion, you and I are nothing? Without compassion, you and I have nothing. Don't you realize the person in the ditch is you? It's me. And we're not in that ditch because we're an innocent victim of somebody else's crime. We're in that ditch because of our own sin and rebellion. We are in the ditch of our fight against God. Because I'll lie when I want to lie. I'll do what I want to do. I'll pick out the God I want. I'll worship that God the way I want. And we put ourselves in the, di in the ditch of our own sin and death. And we're just laying there waiting until Satan comes by and scoops up the prize. And Jesus saw you there. What would you have done? We'd have gone to their side. You deserve to be there. You're there because you rebelled against me. You're there because you fought me. But Jesus had compassion. He moved. He didn't cross the street. He crossed heaven. He crossed time and space. And he got down in that ditch. And he forgave your sins. And he healed you of your rebellion. And he picked you and me up. And he gave us life. And he gave us life eternal. I'm a child of God. Everything I am, everything I have is because of God's compassion. That's all we have. And now I'm going to say that but I give that out to nobody? 
I owe that to nobody. Folks, it isn't about, okay, God, you did this for me. I got, I'm supposed to go do it for somebody. How does your whole life depend upon compassion and you not show it? Doesn't work, does it? Now, what compassion does, I find to be really uncomfortable. I don't think I've ever said this. I'm about to tell you something. I'm preaching it. I don't do it. This is, this is such a harder story than we ever give credit to. This favorite story about be a good person, do a good thing is awful. Because look at how Jesus describes compassion. What does compassion do? You know, the first thing I notice is compassion gets in the ditch. You ever seen a ditch? Not usually the cleanest spot on the road. You know, we're not, yeah, you can go hang out in a ditch today. I mean, ditches are so bad, they're even synonymous with, oh, I feel like my life's in a ditch right now. No, a ditch is a bad place. It's a dirty place. This guy's bleeding. Man, compassion gets in places and in a dirtiness that I don't, I don't want to be. You know what I want? I want the church to provide for me opportunities to be compassionate. Once a year, 9 to 12, I go do it. I'm done. I wash my hands. Did you see how compassionate I was? But that's the other thing here. This isn't really scheduled, is it? Man, he's down in that ditch. And, and folks, here's the, here, when I say I don't like this story, this next part is the part. I, I, I just, I don't, I, I, I want to say I don't know what Jesus means, but really what I want to say is I don't like what Jesus means. It's not safe for the Samaritan to stop and help this guy. Do you get that? Let me ask you a question if you're a parent. Would you want your child stopping and helping this guy? No. And if I found out my child did, they'd be in trouble. I would do everything I could to be up one side of them and down the other. What are you, what, first of all, what were you doing on that road by yourself? And how do you know the guy in the ditch isn't faking it? How do you know that the moment you look down, you know, out come his friends and now you get in, but don't, don't you ever, don't ever go down that road again and don't ever do that again. You, you, you know what I'm saying, right? It's not safe to help this guy. It appears to me that Jesus is defining a compassion. I, I, you know, folks, don't go out and pick up a stranger on the side of the road because that's what I preached about today. I probably wouldn't. I'm about doing the worst job of presenting a message right now, I can imagine. But what it, what, what's he painting for us here? Folks, it appears to me that on some level, when I'm really demonstrating God's love and compassion, yeah, there might be a, 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 an air of danger. There might be an air of... Get, hey, anytime you're vulnerable and serving, you can be taken advantage of, right? And it seems that Jesus is saying, when you've got God's compassion working... Hey, wait a minute. See, when Jesus crossed the road for me, did that prove to be dangerous for him? You know, another thing I see about compassion here, it costs. I mean, this guy's coming down there. First of all, if he's on the road by himself, I'm going to assume something urgent is happening. He couldn't wait till there was a caravan. He couldn't wait till friends and family. He had to get somewhere. So he's trucking down this road, trying to get to where he belongs. And, and now this is not scheduled. This is not convenient. This is not easy. But he stops. He's involved. What's the story say? The next morning. So he has at least two days wrapped up in helping this guy. And then as the story goes on, it says, and, and I'll come back and pay you whatever. That's a third day. I mean, none of this is even planned. None of this is convenient. He's cost him three days. And he's, of course, he's reaching back here to his wallet, isn't he? Cost him money. Hey, real love, real compassion. It costs. Isn't that the, isn't that the illustration? Isn't that what Jesus is showing? Isn't that what he's portraying for us? So think what we have in the story of the Good Samaritan. Who's my neighbor? It's anybody I see in need. You know, I'm like, the lawyer's got to be thinking, boy, I'm sorry I asked that question. Is anybody I see in need? What does it mean to be a good neighbor? It means I show compassion. I do see. I do engage. I do get involved. Yes, even if that means it's dirty, it's dangerous, and it costs. But now, folks, and 
I should be done. Do you realize we haven't gotten to the sermon yet? We haven't gotten to the message yet. Do you realize Jesus could have made all of those points without introducing us to the Samaritan? You do not need a Samaritan to say, your neighbor's anybody you see in need, be willing to pay the cost, to get dirty, to be in... You don't need a Samaritan to make those points. So why did Jesus introduce the Samaritan? Now think about what's really happening in the question. Remember the word neighbor, others, people, all kind of synonymous. So the question is, now who am I supposed to love? And that commands all over Scripture, isn't it? Us good church folk, been in church for a while, been reading God's Bible for a while, we're, we interact with that command all the time, and we set out, we leave, we go out these doors, head to our car, man, I'm going to work on loving people this week. Now let's be honest, when you and I say people, it's a pretty tight circle, isn't it? The people I'm going to work on loving are my family, my wife and children. I'm going to, I'm going to work on loving a handful of friends, a couple of people at work, couple of people at church. I don't even like everybody at church. I mean, think about it, folks. Don't we all draw the people circle pretty tight? Yeah, we do. Pretty tight circle. So now, I've drawn this circle, and at the same time I'm drawing this circle, I'm asking Jesus who I'm supposed to love. Do you realize what he does to my circle? Does Jesus want me loving my circle? Of course he does. But you want God's love? You want God's compassion flowing through you, working through you? You want to follow me? Jesus blows our circle to pieces. And he takes us out to a circle so far out there, we've never actually been there. And he says, you want to love? Cross the street of your prejudices. question has nothing to do with racism. The question has nothing to do with prejudices. But that's where Jesus takes it by introducing the Samaritan. He takes us out there to a place I don't even want to go. Why? Because if you and I will not cross the street of our prejudices, it doesn't matter how you answer the question. Remember our little circle, folks? You know, Jesus says another place in the Gospels. I should have looked it up. I think it's Matthew chapter 7. But he says another place in the Gospels. He says, you know, if the only people you're working at loving are your little circle, guess what? You're not one big different from the worst God-hater in America today. You're not one bit different from a pagan. Everybody can draw their own little circle. Everybody can choose to love the people they put in their circle Now, if you're talking about God's love, if you're talking about being a follower of mine, if you're talking about loving God because he loved you, then we're going to cross the street of our prejudices because that's where God's love begins. When we cross that street, folks, that's when the power of God begins to work through us and we can make a difference in our society. I would say based on God's word, As I watch the news and I'm in such disagreement with the injustice over here, the unfairness over here, the the rioting and the killing over there, and I sit here safe in my little church circle. You know what? If your loving doesn't lead you to cross the street of your prejudices, then you and I are no different than the people we despise on the news. Not one bit different. You're not doing anything more to help the situation in the United States than the people you accuse of making this place so bad. Well, that sounds like a whole lot more than I ever heard about the Good Samaritan. What's the story answering? Why does he include the Good Samaritan? Because you don't need him to answer those questions. You know... I don't actually think that the Good Samaritan is the hero of the story. I'm pretty sure Jesus is the hero of every story. (laughs) What the Samaritan is showing us is what it looks like to walk with and know the hero. And if I don't look like the Samaritan, 
then I better ask myself why I think I know and am walking with Jesus Christ. You know, my guess is most of us in here, including me standing here, don't think we're prejudiced. I don't think I'm prejudiced. I believe that I could show you a lot of reasons why I'm not prejudiced. Evidence that I'm not prejudiced. When Jesus steps into that group and tells that story, it's a group of people like you and me. He's not telling this out in the big bad world. It's a group of people just like you and me. Good church folk probably didn't think they were prejudiced either. So why does Jesus bring it up? That's not an accusation about you, about me, about... I'm just saying, why does Jesus go there? We're good church people. We love God and we love others. Let's pray. And all it really comes down to, Lord, is loving you and loving others. Probably nothing should, should overwhelm my prayer life, should overwhelm my goals and desires more than a passion to love you and a passion to live that love and show that love in how I love others. God, all across this great nation, this nation that we're concerned about and worried about are people gathering in churches, singing about the love of God. Lord, I pray we would have as much passion to live the love of God as we do to sing about it. God, as we walk through this week, would you make us very aware of our thought processes? Make us very aware of what's going on in our lives when we see people, engage with people, when we see needs, when we see hurt. God, help me, help us cross the street of our prejudices. May your people and may the house of God be the place that the answer for this country pours through. We ask for your help in this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.